House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, welcome back to the House of Mystery here. We're on KKNW 1150 AM, Seattle, and uh, Drive Time. This is Al Warren, of course, and Kev Thompson's there. Hey, Al. Hey, so here we are. Now, um, uh, we're going to get into this. Um, uh, we've been talking to some of the people about the uh, Kurt Cobain uh, suicide, death, murder, whatever, and there's so much going on with different shows and stuff. We, we're going to cover that a little bit. from, And we're sort of going through um, people that were appearing on the uh, documentary Soaked in Bleach. And... Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like we're getting quite a different story from a lot of people that were on that show um, compared to what they say live to us. So um, I find that interesting. Um, well, you know, Al, what makes this case so different from any other, though? Well, why all the conspiracy over Kurt Cobain? You know, I don't know. I, I think that um, he was really kind of a millennial icon. And... Um, as a lot of them do, he died early, you know, very young. Mm-hmm. And and anybody that's popular, you know, look at JFK and look at it. I mean, when you die before your time, I sort of think that um, uh, people dream about what could have been, and and that that's uh, quite a thing. So I think that happens with him. And and for some reason, people really dislike Courtney Love his wife. Well, for some reason, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's uh, not hard to do. We'll um, save that for the show. Let's... Yeah, but that's not hard to do. But and and for and for some reason um it it's it's really kind of a too bad because I think um what they're doing is taking someone that's not popular and making them the evil person. Um and okay, so if he was murdered, let's say uh, she would have to do it, and it just sort of fills in the hole, so it's easier to put out a show saying that, and people that really like him, of course, can jump on that. Um, yeah. But I only want to talk about uh, conspiracy as in when someone presents some evidence and then you find out that it's not as it is. They've, they've created it. There's a reason, and, um, and right. we have to dismiss that because it's not real. So, um, the big, of course, the big interview will be in September with the uh, chief of police of Seattle. That's uh, wow! I know that's pretty exciting, actually. It is. Hey, we only, I hey, we only bring the best. I hope I don't get arrested. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You know, I might park wrong or do something. If I say the wrong thing, he might bust me. So, um, hey. but you know, well, that's okay too. Um, nothing like being in prison with men. <laughs> so, so now t- t- today we have um, um, Carol Chasky, PhD. I was going to call her doctor, but I, I wasn't sure. Well, what, yeah. That would be appropriate. Well, yeah, I just. But people think medical doctor right away, and it isn't necessarily that. Now, um, quite the credentials. Man, this is like a book of all of the accomplishments. It's pretty impressive. And um, uh, Carol's on the line, so uh, thank you for being here, Carol. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, welcome aboard. 
this is uh, you, boy. You've sure done a lot. Um, it makes me feel like I, I, I've done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody can see my gray hair. It, it's taken a while uh, to do things. Yeah, it takes. A and slow. then there's much more to do. You know, there's just so much more to do. Well, this is very interesting. So now, uh, Institute for Linguistic Evidence. Well, I, I find this fascinating, this whole, you know, um, digital evidence investigations and all this stuff. Uh, how did you get started on this? Like, where did this come from for you? Oh, okay. I was a professor at uh, North Carolina State University in linguistics. I was really not happy in the academic world because um, I really like to do things that are very useful and, um, you know, have a direct service in society. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I just felt that, um, you know, teaching linguistics uh, to English majors and engineering students, you know, really, really wasn't going to be my path in life, but I couldn't figure out what else to do. Yeah. And people were coming up with all kinds of suggestions for me, um, and none of them seemed right. So I did what anyone does when they're really faced with a wall. I just started to pray, you know, God, uh, yeah, please show me some kind of path. And I got a call from a detective named uh, W. Allison Blackman. He goes by Allison, his family name. Asking me if there was any way I could determine the authorship of suicide notes that were left on a home computer of um, three guys that lived together as roommates. So I said, well, do you have any ink? Do you have any paper? Do you have any handwriting? you know, thinking that he would probably go to the uh, state crime lab. And he said, oh, I've already done that. I've gone to the state crime lab. And they, they said, you don't have ink, you don't have paper, you don't have handwriting, what do you want us to do? And he started asking around and found out that there was such a thing called linguistics. Yes. So he called up my department, somebody sent him to me, and I said, if you're willing to work with me as an experiment... I have some ideas, but you have to recognize this is experimental, and he was fine with that because he was just a really good detective and a really good investigator. I analyzed the syntactic patterns of the three roommates, and by syntax I mean like the way we put our words into phrases and our phrases into sentences. So it's, if you can remember diagramming in middle school, it's kind of like that. Oh, yeah. And then I counted up things about those uh, syntactic patterns, ran a very simple statistical test, and there was only one in 10,000 chance that the fellow had written his own suicide notes. And there was a significant difference between the suicide notes and one of his roommates, but not the other roommate. So I said, I think this is the fellow who wrote the suicide notes, because I can't get any significant difference between him and the suicide notes. 
And that's when they told me that he actually had access to all the legal drugs that were injected into the fellow who died. He was six weeks from his medical degree. He was known to be able to give medicine without waking people up. And he was tried. He, he was arrested and then went on, the, went on trial. Um, and on the witness stand, he admitted that he wrote the suicide notes. Oh, wow. So, so would it be fair to say that it's, it's not forensic psychology, but it's forensic linguistics? Absolutely. You hit well, it on the head. Yeah, where you can't, you don't analyze the handwriting, but you analyze the thought behind it and say that this mindset belongs to this person. Yes. In fact, I don't, I don't, I don't analyze the handwriting, um, and I don't analyze the psychology of the person either. I don't say that the person is depressed because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I can't really make that kind of an announcement. But what I can say is that the language, which is built in our minds first, you know, which it's language just yes. takes our thoughts and decodes them, you know, encodes them somehow. So I, I can say that those patterns um, either match or don't match some other document. True. See, I, I work in law enforcement and yes. report writing, report writing, report writing, report writing. And as a supervisor, I can look at a report and say, listen, you didn't write this report. You wrote it for your buddy. Ah, ha, ha, how did you know? Well, because the verbiage. Yes. And because you're so familiar with those people. I mean, what, some of the things about language that I really love are how forgiving it is. For instance, you know how we can start a sentence, and if we really know somebody well, that person will finish it for us? Ah, yes. Me and Al do that on air. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you're reading those reports, you know the people so well that in a sense you hear them or you don't hear them. (laughs) And when you don't hear them and it has, you know, their name on it, you think, wait a minute, something's fishy here. Yeah. And and that's how language is. It's built so that um, we can communicate super, super fast with each other. And also kind of predict what's coming next. And syntax is really the glue that, that holds that together. But syntax also degrades in milliseconds. So, I mean, everybody's had the experience of, you know, like it's, it's almost a joke in marriage counseling. You know, Bob, say exactly what Mary just said. You know, and he paraphrases it. Because yeah. we all paraphrase when we hear what somebody just said, and everybody goes, Bob, you didn't say exactly what she said. Because the syntax or the form of it, it degrades in milliseconds. I mean, it's lost. And so you just remember the meaning of it, and then you say the meaning and however you would say the meaning. How do you, how do you find that uh, the courts deal with this and admissibility and stuff. Is there any issues with that? Yes. I'm I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, Fortunately, the method that I've developed using these syntactic patterns has been very successful in being admitted into courts in the states and also at federal courts. But that's because 
we've been developing this method for years. I mean, started doing, started developing the method in 1994. And with developing it, we were really conscious of figuring out when is it wrong and what does it need in order to work well. So these days in American courts, um, judges typically go by what's known as the Daubert standard. And, the, you know, some of the things that Daubert standard wants are what's your error rate? You know, how often is your method just wrong? Just because just methods can be wrong. And, and are you following a standard operating procedure? So we have that for the syntactic author ID. There are other methods that are out there. Um, there's a method called stylistics, and people call that by lots of different names. Sometimes they call it sociolinguistics. Um, it, it, it just the, the people who use it keep changing the name of it, but um, it has actually had a very rough time being admitted as evidence. And either it's not admitted at all, where judges just say, you know, you don't have an error rate, you don't have a standard operating procedure, we just can't really let you talk to a jury about this. Or right. you can talk to the jury, but you can't state a conclusion about the authorship. That's a really weird thing for an expert to do. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. how is that? I mean... I, I'm trying to I'm, I'm I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. I mean, evidence is evidence, but simply because you don't have an A B C D step, you know, to get to the, you know, this conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I I, I just don't get it. You, you don't get it. What that that it should be not be allowed or what? No, I I believe it should be allowed. Oh, okay. But okay, everything well, has to be yeah. so cut and dried. You know, Absolutely. we, you know, and it's just, you know, oh, it's frustrating. Well, I agree with you um, that if you have a stepwise method and it's cut and dry and you know how accurate it is for that particular case, you know, then I think it should be admitted. And that's what we've done. We're very fortunate. Um, the, the syntactic method I was just talking about has an accuracy rate of 95%. Uh, so it, we range, obviously, you know, sometimes our accuracy rate for a case might be, you know, 83%. But we know for each case just how accurate it is because we, we first of all run it on the different suspects in the case and say, well, how accurately can I differentiate Kev and Al? How accurately can I differentiate Al and Carol? If I can't do a good job differentiating the known stuff, then, you know, who wants me to figure out where the unknown came from? So, so we've done all that work. Um, and, and the other method I was talking about, the stylistics method, they just haven't done it. And a lot of it is because it's really, they can't do it. The, the, the stylistics method is so subjective that, I mean, they actually say, we don't know what we're going to find until we find it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that's sort of like 
the whole thing that happened, you know, I'm thinking about, like, the O.J. Simpson case, you know. People <laughs> found stuff that became important later. Yeah, a day late and dollar short. Uh-huh, yeah. Now, w would it be fair to say, though, for, for the sake of some of our law enforcement listeners, that what we're discussing here is the difference between scientific evidence and empirical evidence? Well, I, I would say that scientific evidence is empirical, and I would say what we're talking about is the difference between scientific objective evidence and non-scientific subjective evidence. For instance, let's say that you have a, um, a suicide note, and instead of using the word and written out, A-N-D, the, the writer of the note used uh, an ampersand, okay, or a plus sign. Well, in the stylistics method, the stylistics analyst might say, oh, that ampersand is significant, and I found it in this other document, so this, this suicide note must have been written by the person who wrote this other document. Now, of course, immediately you should be thinking things like, well, wow, you know, the ampersand's on a keyboard. Anybody mm -hmm. could use that. Yes. Or, you know, oh, huh, I oh. know people who use ampersands. But why would they? That doesn't necessarily mean they're the author of something. You know, in fact, anybody who uses the ampersands might have been the author of this document. So that's a little scary. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, I've seen reports where the same stylistics analyst who says that ampersand is really crucial in one case, in another case will say, oh, no, that doesn't matter at all. That's not significant. Hmm. How, so how? that's why, that's what's scary about that method and why I believe the courts are right in not letting it in because you never know what they're going to say is significant. And it's like they say, we never know until we find it. Well, science doesn't really operate like that. I mean, that would be like saying, we can't tell the temperature until we make up how to measure Fahrenheit. <laughs> no. yeah. How often are, you, are, are, are do people leave suicide notes? Do we know that? That's pretty rare, actually. Suicide notes, some, some people say about 10% of suicide notes. Other people say it could be as high as 25%. Wow. wow. Yeah, so when you think yeah. about it, it's rare. Huh. I always thought it would be more than that. Exactly, because you would want people to know, why did I do this? I know, it, it, and I think for the, for the survivors, this is one of the hardest things, is that for so many of them, you know, from, from 90 to 75 percent of them, they don't get that kind of closure. It, it, exactly, and, and here's why that, that I, I'm surprised. If I was to commit suicide right this minute, I still love my family, I still love my friends, and I would want them to understand why I did this. Because, you know, I'm depressed, I, I don't like my life, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want you to go through life wondering, was it me, was it me? You know, you'd, you'd think that people would want that, but you say only 10% of people leave notes? 
from 10 to 25%, yes. And, wow. you know, another amazing thing about it is that, well, first of all, suicide notes are rare, and then secondly, suicide notes are so variable, they're almost like human faces. They're so unique in terms of, they just don't share a lot of features over and over. We, like, when normal people, you know, who are not suicidal, when we think about what would we say in a suicide note, that's very different than what real suicidal people write in their suicide notes. Yeah, when I started sense. doing this work. Yeah. W would it also be fair to say, because I'm trying to reconcile what you said, um, would it also be fair then to say that usually suicide is not really well thought out? Like, like I wake up this morning, find out I lost my job. I'm going to put a, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to end it, and I just don't have the time to write a note because it's an instantaneous decision or impulsive. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I think there are impulsive suicides, and but one thing I've read in the literature that was very interesting to me is that. So, you know how it's always shocking when a person commits suicide? I mean, it's just always stunning to everybody around them. You know, I, I, most people don't say, like, oh, yeah, I saw that coming. Um, instead, people feel like, wow, I thought he was getting better, you know, or I thought he was actually happier. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because suicidologists theorize that, there's this terrible period of tension when the person is deciding, you know, what do I want to do? Well, that's and true. And then once they make the decision, they actually do get happier because at least they know now. They've resolved themselves to it. Yes. They, they've got that resolution, that calmness. And so everybody around them mistakenly thinks that that resolution and calmness is the decision's been made, you know, the happy way, the non-suicide way, and actually it's been made the other way. Hmm. Huh. that How often do you, now I'm going to tie this in, um, now fake sure. notes, do you get fake uh, suicide notes? And, you know, on all the TV shows, you know, they always have someone writing a fake note, you know, and killing someone. Well, actually, that was my first case, as I described. My first case was a fake, they were fake suicide notes right. that the fellow wrote um, after he murdered his roommate. And he finally admitted on the witness stand, I did it to get the cops off my back. And, you know, it was already done, so that was the only thing I could do. And so that's, that's, that's how he handled it. Now, I have had cases where the police theorized that a suicide note was fake because they thought, like, a boyfriend had murdered his girlfriend. And when I did the analysis of, this, of the uh, note, it was a real suicide note, not, not a phony suicide note. So I, I think that, that police officers have to think about it both ways. Yeah. yeah. You know, could this be a real one? Could it also be a phony one? Right. Uh, and that's tough. Uh, 
and yeah. when and when we're, when they're famous, I would imagine, like we we're going to tie into to Kurt Cobain, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and and Courtney, Courtney, yeah, and now and so being that they were both quite famous, and he ended up dead. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of controversy over this. Um, people that loved him and don't like her, and 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 I and I noticed. Um, you were in Soaked in Bleach as well in the documentary. Yeah. And and I've I've been brought they brought attention to me how you made some comments since then saying that they kind of manipulated what it is that you said in the show. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that to us? Like, wh- what exactly is it that they changed? Well, I have not seen the show, but everything I've read about it. Um, and basically, I am presented as saying that the note is a stereotypical suicide note and that it's a suicide note. Uh, excuse me, um, that the last, I'm sorry, what I believe and what they presented are two different things, and I get them confused sometimes. I believe that what they presented was me saying that it's not a suicide note, that it was just stereotypical language um, and that anyone could have written. But actually, I ran um, the note three ways through my software that I've developed for identifying suicide notes. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Mm. So that software is called Snare um, for Suicide Note Assessment Research. And also because I do think that suicide is a real snare in, in human life. All right, so Snare works by looking for the linguistic patterns that are associated with suicide notes and also with a bunch of control documents. So sometimes suicide notes sound like love letters. Sometimes they sound like apologies or business letters even. And they can also be like trauma narratives. I mean, that's one of the reasons they're so hard to identify is because they're all over the place. You know, they're not stereotypical the way we normal people, you know, think they should be. So we go through uh, the text analysis that is done by computer, and it 
finds these patterns and then counts them up, and then we apply a statistical procedure to it, and it tests, is this on the side of real suicide notes or is it on the side of the control documents, like love letters, apologies, business letters, trauma narratives, those kinds of things. Yeah. And well, that, that software is um, about 86% accurate when the notes are real short, like 45 words or less, and it's about 81% accurate when the notes are very long, which makes sense when you think about it, because the longer the note, the more it can become like one of the control documents, you know, like the more it becomes a trauma narrative or the more it becomes a, a big, long apology. But the real short ones don't seem to have that room, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I ran the Cobain note, the whole note, the whole page, okay, and that came out as a real suicide note. Then I ran the top three quarters of it, which everybody seems to notice about the note, that there's like a division between mm -hmm. the top three quarters and the bottom quarter. Right. So the top three quarters came out as a suicide note, and then the bottom quarter came out as a suicide note. What? So yeah. he wrote them at two different times, do you think? or? You know... I thought about this, and yeah. I actually said this while I was being, you know, filmed for the Soaked in Bleach, but I think that this was cut. He wrote a very poetic first suicide note, the first part of it, you know, where he talked about his career, um, his love of music, but his real disgust and hatred of the music industry, his feeling that he wasn't being fair to his fans because he really hated what his life was like, his inability to cope with it well. Um, and then he wrote a more stereotypical suicide note at the bottom. Well, when you think about it, he killed himself twice, too. He overdosed himself, and then he shot himself. So his suicide note is very much like Indi a metaphor. Yeah, it's indicative of how he did it. Yes. Yes. He's, you know, we have to remember, uh, yeah. he was a poet. Well, yeah, he was a songwriter. Yeah. Um, right. Now, I, I have to agree with Al. Um, let's take this just a step further. Do you think that it's possible, then, that maybe previous to his actual death, Maybe he was considering suicide, wrote that portion of the letter, then thought secondly about it, and, well, let's put this away. I'm not quite ready to do this, like we were just discussing. You know, people yep. are sometimes indecisive uh, about it. And then, you know, he's like, you know what? What the heck? I'm tired. I'm going to do it. And wrote the second portion. I mean, why let a letter go to waste? And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be funny, but... You know, it, it would almost be poetic. And so yes. he wrote the second half when he actually did it. 
And, and that's a, that to me, I haven't heard anything ever against that theory. In fact, you're the first person I've ever heard actually propose that theory. I wouldn't know. Um, I think the only way you could have, anybody could have tested that would have been like ink analysis of the two different sections. And, and I don't even know who has the original document anymore. But, I mean, that could have been one way to do it, to say, okay, was the ink from the first section older than the ink in the second section? Or was it a different pen even, you know, a, a different source? I have no idea. That's a really interesting, great theory to me. Yeah, yeah, because they're trying to present that um, Courtney Love wrote the note, and she, she copied his writing in the film. And um, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I don't believe it. Plus, you know, we have another um, <sighs> another expert um, in uh, who was in the film, and that's um, uh, Heidi Harlson, and she's a forensic document examiner. Now she's saying yes. the same thing that they they had uh, cut what she did in the interview to make it sound like she said it was traced by. Courtney and written by someone else, but uh, that's not what she really said. Um, she said yeah. uh, it was mi mischaracterized through the editing and taken totally out of context. Yes, I, I'm really, um, I was really surprised that so many of us had the same experience with the soaked in bleach editing. Um, I, I knew that about Heidi, I know her. Um, and I knew that about um, uh, another person in the film. And when I look back on it, you know, it was pretty obvious to me that there was a struggle going on, you know, among the directors or producers, I'm not sure who was who, um, where they would ask questions in one way, but then talk in another way off camera, and, you know, I was just told to say what I had done, and that's what I did. I, right. you know, I talked about snare and how it's been uh, validated on 400 suicide notes. And so we know the error rate. Now, obviously, snare's got a pretty good error rate, you know, from yeah. 14 to 20%. Yeah. And that's, that's, not, that, that's not bad. It's not bad, but, I mean, it's not, you know, 5% error rate. But, I mean, they're really hard to do. And, frankly, the fact that we expect police officers to do it is astounding to me when psychiatrists can only identify notes between 50 and 70% of the time. Yeah. But typical, we have this attitude that police officers have to do everything and be everything uh -huh. to everybody at all times. You know, and, and, and I mean, I, I just... One of the reasons I built this tool, when I got work, when I got started in this field, I, I realized, wow, you know, I could build tools that would give cops really good, reliable things to use, and they wouldn't have to just, you know, kind of go by their gut or, or hope they got it right, or, yeah. you know, they could have just some... I, I would appreciate it. I'm chuckling because I am in law enforcement, so we could certainly, certainly use it. Yeah, oh, especially yeah, I know. I mean, 
Because Al and I were discussing this off air before we brought you on. How often do you run? Okay, let's say we have a suicide note. Well, let's just go to Kurt Cobain. And we have a suicide note. And everybody, I, I myself, I, I was a, a pretty good fan of Kurt Cobain. Mm -hmm. Now, he's dead. We have a suicide note. Yet we have a wife who is in the same industry and we're talking about Courtney here, mm -hmm. and she's not very well-liked. I mean, let's, let's just be intellectually honest here. Right. So how often do you run into the fact that we automatically assume that she must have done it, not for any good reason, but just simply because of public dislike for her? I think that in many of these cases, the conclusion is politically motivated. And I'm going to use that term politically in like a really broad sense. Sure, I What understand. I mean is that there's, there's all kinds of other reasons that make a decision, it is suicide or it's not suicide, the, the favored one. And, I mean, I had a case with a very high-ranking military officer, and he had been involved in some pretty um, high-profile missions in the Middle East. Um, it, it was concluded by, you know, a military investigation that he committed suicide Based, and part of the part of the um, argument there was the last email that he sent to his wife. His wife contacted me, and you know I ran the note through Snare, and it was not a suicide note. Uh oh. I wrote my analysis up, and you know the military was not interested in hearing from me. The hell you say? Pardon. I said, the hell you say. <laughs> yes. And, and it was because um, the thought of this guy being murdered was just too, too hot a political issue, you know, given where he was stationed at the time, what that said about our base security, what it would say about... Um, infiltration, you know, there was just, it was just easier, in my opinion, it was just easier for the military to say, hey, this is a suicide, and, and of course, a Marine would shoot himself with his wrong hand in the head. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I found that out after I did the analysis, you know, and his wife said to me, he would never use his wrong hand for shooting. It, it, yeah, we have got the most, you know, I, I also am in the military, National Guard at this point, I'm trying to retire, 
And, you know, we have got the most weapons training in the world, but we're going to use our wrong hand. Yes, to do something like shoot ourselves in the head. You know, um, but, but see, no, no gun residue testing was done on him. Um, nothing, it, it was a really, really um, incomplete, very incomplete uh, crime scene investigation. But I do think it, it goes back to what you're saying, is that sometimes there's such a, a, like a popular attitude of what it should have been that it's easy, um, you know, to just not be thorough. It, yeah. Or you just automatically, you just sink your teeth into a suspect and you just won't let it go. Because in preparation yeah. for this interview, I was mentioning to some of my friends at work, you know, hey, I'm going to be talking, you know, blah, 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 Kurt Cobain, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah that, that Courtney Love, yeah, she, you know, she did it. Oh, it, you know, she wrote that note. Ah, you know, how do you know that? Well, she just did. Yes. Well, yeah, but see, one of the things I've always been interested in doing that I've never had the opportunity to do on this case was just to compare the authorship of the note. Like, going back to the first thing I talked about, the, the syntactic analysis of authorship, I don't have any of Kurt Cobain's other writings. Uh, I don't uh, have any of Courtney Love's writings. But uh, it would be sample. really fascinating if I had that, if I had enough, I, I need about 2,000 words or 100 sentences for each of the suspects. And it would be really interesting to, to See if we can differentiate Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain's no writings, and then try to classify the note to one of them as an author. So you you need a control sample. I would have to have the known known writing samples from from him and known writing samples from her. Right. Well, I can ask her. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, are we fixing to open a can of worms? <laughs> yeah, I am. I I love Courtney. But, I mean that that would really to me that would really be a way of it, you know if people are claiming that she wrote it, then let's test if she wrote it. Exactly. You know, and, and and I do have a method that gets into court and that you know has a has a high accuracy rate. And it would really be interesting to see, okay, well, we wanted to know, did she write it or not? Did he write it or not? Yeah, yeah, I, I, but I'm starting to get the feeling that a lot of the people that um, want him to have committed suicide, uh, want him to have been killed instead of committed suicide, uh, they don't want to go that far because I don't think they really believe it. Tell you the truth. I, I, yeah, I mean, I've, nobody has ever said to me, like what you just said, you know, like, yeah. well, we'll ask her for writing samples. Nobody's ever said that to me. You know, they just kind of clamp down. Right, because we don't really want to know. Because um, especially the, I'm sorry, the, but the producers of that film, you know, we're going to go through ten people that were on it, and every single one of them said that uh, it was taken out of context and they totally changed it for one direction. It's like saying, this is the answer, she murdered him, and that's it. And they only presented evidence that would fit that. 
and changed people's words. And, mm-hmm. uh, yes. And that is either just to do it to sell and to get get some notoriety, or either they're, they really believe it. But I, I really don't think they believed it, because you wouldn't have to change it if you believed it. Well, it's just to maintain the popular opinion. Yeah, and that's right. uh, jumping on the bandwagon, and, and, and that's got to be stopped. Uh, that's my opinion, but, uh, you know. So do you well, think I mean, it's a... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, to me, it's really a, a, an honor to be on your show and to be allowed to speak freely about it, um, because I obviously did feel that my words were twisted or, you know, spliced. Or, I, I, I do remember saying that the, the last portion of the note was more what we non-suicidal people think of as, as what should be a stereotypical suicide note. But that doesn't mean that the top part isn't a suicide note. Right. Because suicide notes are all over the place. Yeah. And that, that's the part, they just took out that one little part about, yeah. <laughs> about stereotypicality and, and took away, you know, I, as far as I can tell from what people have said to me, you know, the rest of my opinion was not there. And, and so, you know, thank you very much for giving me this chance. Yeah, because yeah, when I, um, I, I was approached by uh, a source who told me uh, about some of this, and then that's when I started going through the film and taking everyone's name and then started searching them out. And we're going to have quite a few of them on. And it's uh, I just want them to be able to say, hey, this is what really happened. I'm tired of all this uh, fake news. (laughs) (laughs) I started to say, uh, uh, high level. (laughs) It really is fake news. And and this happened long before fake news became real news. You know, I mean, (laughs) This was a couple of years ago, yeah. and, and I remember thinking, I was just so, so, it took them a very long time to actually get a distributor for the film, and, and you know, every once in a while I would just email and say, hey, how are things going, you know, and they would say, oh, we're going fine, we're still looking for this, or doing this, or whatever, and we'll let you know, we'll let you know, and then it came out, and they, nobody let me know. Yeah. It wasn't until somebody called me that I said, oops. Yeah. I guess it's out now. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the and the, and it it always worries me when I, I spoke to the uh, director and then even Tom Grant, the investigator, and it it always makes me turn my head when Tom Grant replied. He said he'd only do the show if he was being paid for the show. Oh wow! And um, so that to is me, it? Yeah, that's like no, yeah. I'm not paying you if you don't want to defend your work. And yeah, isn't the truth more important than money? Well, absolutely. In his case, obviously not, and uh, that right. that taints it for me. As soon as someone starts asking for money to give you information or to talk about their work, because he's behind right. it all, he's the one that said Courtney right. contacted him, blah blah blah, and I I understand that, but it's it's um, it's just uh, t- it's time to tell the truth and to come out and yeah. And uh, that that made me think second right there. And um, but you know, and, and you know, and I'm a fan, in the sense that I like Kurt Cobain, his work. Didn't know him, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's sad if he committed suicide. Sad, it's terrible if he got murdered. But I, I'm, I'm, I was more on the being murdered side before 
but uh, mm-hmm. certainly more on the uh, suicide now. Really? You know, it also is interesting that, that so many different types of analysis would be converging. When I work cases, sometimes the documents I deal with have some handwriting on them. Other times the issue is digital evidence, like what hard drive did it come off of? You know, can, can we find anything about, you know, an IP address that it might have come through when it was getting emailed, that kind of stuff. And so... To me, it's like a three-legged stool. I don't want to know what the other people have come up with. I want to work independently from them and then allow the investigator at the end of it to look over the whole thing and say, okay, you know, are we all heading in one direction? Are we completely, you know, are all the different types of analysis confused and, you know, Well, because that really gives the investigator something to work with. Right. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the big thing is we do want the truth. Um, at the end of the day, it may not be what we like. It might not be the way we want it to be. But right. the bottom line is um, we want to know what really happened. And, uh, yes. I, you know, and that's sort of what my goal was for this series of shows being in Seattle, we want we. I just want to bring out the people and let's really say what they think and put it together from that evidence. I don't want to have an, a frame of what I think happened and try to make and take the evidence that fits that. You know, right. afterwards, I want to just get all the evidence and kind of go. Well, this is the way it looks, and leave it at that. That's that's quite yeah, and, and that's exactly why having a really objective, really you know. The reason I put my method into software is so that it's not me or one of my helpers figuring it out on our own little subjective selves. Right. Yes. The machine has no skin in the game, doesn't know anybody, doesn't have a theory, doesn't even know the music we're talking about. You know, just it's just looking for linguistic patterns. Oh, and I think that really <laughs> helps the law enforcement oh, community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because they don't have to worry if I was corrupted with confirmation bias, it's now a popular term. You know, was I, was I looking to find something because I was already primed to look that way? Right. It, it's really crucial to have objective and statistical analysis. You know, like, hey, it, the model, the statistical model says it's more likely one way than the other. You know, and I can't read the numbers. They are what they are. Right. Uh, like we were saying early on in the interview, when it comes to a jury, everything has got to be so cut and dried. But yeah. if I can amend what you're saying, these are people who were celebrities, and we latch on to these celebrities. They mean so much to us. Music mean so much to us it becomes such a part of our being like i listen to a lot of talk radio and through that i feel like i've really made a bond with these people and it's just hard for me to wrap my mind when one of them dies and we you know it's said that they have committed suicide how could they possibly have killed themselves i'm a part of this man you know how dare he do this no it's got to be something else she has had to have killed him and i'm now completely 
you know, unreliable as a witness because of my bond that has been created. Yeah, you are. That is such a good, great way to describe it. You're right. I mean, that's, that's what happens to experts, too. You know, I mean, experts can become so friendly with the attorneys they're working for or so sympathetic to the side that they're hired by. You know, and, and I, I give talks about this all the time. The only way to protect ourselves as experts and to protect the criminal justice system is to have methods that just are completely objective, computerize them as much as you can, get away from, you know, one person's interpretation of the data, because otherwise we're all just prone to that. That's well, again, this has been a fascinating hour. I've really enjoyed it. Um, our guest has been Dr. Carol Chasky. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Great conversation with you, too. Really appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi there, I'm Kendra Adachi, and I host the Lazy Genius Podcast, a show that helps you be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. But here's the kicker. You get to decide what matters, not me. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you a new way to see. Episodes are around 20 minutes and are full of practical, helpful information, as well as a lot of permission slips to do what makes sense for you. New episodes drop every Monday and cover a broad range of topics from laundry and getting dinner on the table to finding work-life balance and organizing your inbox. So I invite you to give the Lazy Genius Podcast a listen. Together, let's stop doing it all for the sake of doing what matters. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.